Genesis chapter 12. Those of you who have been with us the last number of weeks, we've been looking at this man, Abraham, or as he's known here, Abram, before God changes his name from exalted father, Abram, to Abraham, meaning the father of a great multitude, or father of many. And when we meet him in this story, he's 75 years of age. He's childless, although he's been married for some time. And God calls him from the land of Ur of the Chaldees, somewhere in Iraq, and to leave his kindred, his countrymen in that very beautiful place, Ur, very cultured, wealthy place, and to go out by faith, not knowing where he's going, because God didn't give him a GPS direction, but just to go out, trust the Lord, and for the next 100 years, just travel by faith like a Bedouin going from place to place. And that's Abraham, the father of the faithful. But in verse 10, he faces this great challenge, great test in the land of Canaan. It says there was a famine in the land. And Abraham went down into Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was grievous in the land. It came to pass when he came near, or come near, when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, that thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. It came to pass that when Abram was come into Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And he entreated, or treated Abram, well for her sake. And he had sheep and oxen and he-asses and men-servants and maid-servants and she-asses and camels. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why saidest thou she is my sister? So I might have taken her to me to wife. Now therefore behold thy wife, take her, go thy way. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. Amen. The Lord will bless the reading of his word. Now, Abraham faces this great trial of a famine. As we said Previously, Ur was a very wealthy, fertile place beside a river. And here Abraham finds himself, maybe for the very first time in his life, in danger of starving to death. And what's missing in verse 10, if you read it very carefully, you often hear me say this, read what's not there as well as what is there. 
And what's not there, who has been there throughout all the verses leading up to verse 10, is Abraham seeking God's will, seeking God's guidance, acknowledging God, calling upon the name of the Lord. And suddenly, for the first time in the story, Abraham ignores God, forgets God, in the panic of the famine. In fact, the famine, we're told, was very grievous. It was a terrible famine. Clearly something that you couldn't buy your way out of. At least it appeared that way to Abraham. And he panics, and he ignores God in the situation. Now, I mentioned last week, although it's very easy to condemn him and to do it in a very self-righteous way, we have to understand the context. Abraham had servants. He had flocks. He was in a grievous famine. He was surrounded by hostile Canaanites who themselves would be dealing with the famine. And he was in danger of being attacked at any moment. And it would be very easy for him to panic in such a situation, particularly when his wife and servants and those who are with him, maybe Lot, we know he's not a spiritually strong person, and Lot's family would complain and point the finger at him for bringing them down into the land of Canaan from the comfort and splendor and security of Ur of the Chaldees. So we can imagine all these things are bubbling up in the life and mind of Abraham at this time. And he goes straight down to Egypt. God is no longer in the driving seat of Abraham's life. Abraham is. And you notice the language, it says in verse 10, he went down into Egypt to sojourn there. Maybe in his mind he was just doing this for a short time. God had called him to the land of Canaan and said, this is the land that I will give to your descendants. And Abraham reconciled that in his mind and said, well, I'll just go for a short trip down to Egypt. Egypt's fertile land. They've got the Nile Delta there. And it just makes sense for me to pop down there until this famine is over. Now, how much better it would have been for Abraham to have gone back to that altar that he built, or even the altars that he built, and asked the Lord for guidance in this situation. But he makes this mistake by running down to Egypt for help. But one mistake very quickly is followed by another. And once you step outside the will of God, it's not long before you start making more and more strange decisions and saying more and more strange things, because you notice what happens in verse 11, just the next verse. It says, It came to pass when he was come near to enter into Egypt. Still no mention of God. Still no seeking God's help, God's guidance in this situation. Abraham's thinking with Abraham's wisdom. And he begins to speak to his wife. And he says, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. He says, Sarah, we need to have a conversation here. We're going down to Egypt. 
And when we get down to Egypt, Pharaoh rules there and his men are there. And we can't trust God, really what he's saying to her. We, we can't trust God to protect you and protect me down there. We have to take care of matters our own way. And he says, I've been thinking, Sarah, and one of the problems will be when we go down to Egypt, because you are a very beautiful woman to look upon, the Egyptians will report it to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh will kill me. He'll be ruthless, and he'll take you into his harem of wives and concubines. Now, was Sarah not in danger in the land of Canaan? Surrounded by all the Canaanites? Of course. But Abraham, was he able to trust God to take care of them when he went to Canaan? But how quickly we forget to trust God in Egypt. And often that's like us. Maybe when we're starting out as Christians, we pray more. We're more trusting the Lord. When we have nothing, we tend to be more faithful more fervent for the Lord, more willing to give from the little that we have. But as years go by and things go well for us, there's a tendency in all of us, isn't there, to say, well, maybe I could handle the next bit by myself. Maybe even in the church, we can sort of part God on one side and handle this next decision by our own collective wisdom. And Abraham falls into that situation. And he says to Sarah, listen, Sarah, here's the, here's the plan. I've thought it through. When we get down to Egypt, don't tell them you're my wife. We'll tell everybody you're my sister. And he explains to her in verse 13, that it may be well with me for thy sake and my soul shall live because of thee. So he says, uh, we'll do well out of this. Not only will our lives be preserved, but the Egyptians will treat us very well because of you. And it says in verse 14, And it came to pass that when Abram or Abram was come into Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. They, they immediately noticed. Now, bear in mind that Sarah is 65 years of age at this point. You ladies would need to ask her if she was here, what's the secret? 65 years of age. And not only was she a beautiful woman, the Bible says she was a very beautiful woman. Stunning. And Pharaoh had his choice of all the women in Egypt, and yet she stood out at 65 years of age. And in verse 15, the princes, the rulers of the nation, quickly identified that this was a very special woman. They recommended her to Pharaoh. And at the end of verse 15, it says, And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And he entreated Abram well for her sake. And he had sheep and oxen and he asses and men servants and maid servants and she asses and camels. Full stop. So what Abraham was afraid of did happen. The Egyptians immediately spotted 
the great beauty of Sarah and desired to have her as part of Pharaoh's collection of wives. But the other part of his plan also worked because it says Pharaoh then, the wealthiest man probably in the world at that time, he treated Abraham very well because of Sarah. But here's the problem. There's an empty chair in the Abraham's house, isn't there? He's got all the wealth now because it says in verse 16, he had sheep, oxen, he asses, men, servants, maid servants, she asses, camels. Maybe things that he didn't have before. In fact, we don't really read that Abraham was rich, or at least very rich, before he left, before he went to Egypt. He certainly had some degree of substance when he went down there. But when he came out of Egypt, he came out of Egypt, you could almost say like a multimillionaire in those terms. And his plan worked because he, he did very well initially. Sarah's life was preserved. He wasn't attacked. The Egyptians bought the deception that Sarah was not his wife. And he became very wealthy, just like that. Now, bear in mind, they've just come from a famine. They're, they've just come from a, a place where they were at the point of losing their lives with this grievous famine in the land of Canaan. And it seems on the surface that Abraham made the right decision to run down to Egypt. And he's got away with it. Maybe he even told himself, God must be happy with me. Because look how well I prospered. Look at all the blessings that are now flowing. And maybe he even told himself, well, God said I was going to be a blessing to the nations and the nations are going to bless me. And here's the fulfillment of it. Well, you can imagine the devil telling him all these things to congratulate him on doing the right thing. And whenever you disobey the will of God, the devil will always roll out the red carpet to welcome you down the road of compromise and out of the will of God. Remember when King David fled the land of Israel to run to the Philistines away from Saul? What did David discover? For 18 months, everything went well. For 18 months, the Philistines welcomed him and they even gave him a city, Ziklag, to live in. And David was able to live at peace for those 18 months. Saul wouldn't touch him down there in the land of the Philistines. And it seemed that everything was going well for David. The same here for Abraham. And maybe the same is true for you. You have been wandering from the will of God maybe for a number of years. And in many ways, life has maybe got better. Maybe you've become more prosperous, more successful. Nothing bad has come into your life. And you've come to the conclusion, well, God must be pleased with me. God must be happy with me. But you know, there is a grave danger now in Abraham's life and legacy. Because every day, was a day that maybe the Philistines, or sorry, the Egyptians would discover the truth. 
That was a danger. Every day was a day that maybe they would say, let's stop giving Abraham wealth. Let's just take the wealth from him. And he had no peace in his heart and he had no peace in his life. But the greatest danger to Abraham here down in Egypt was that the wife that God had given him to be the woman to bear the messianic line from was now in danger of being taken away from him forever and corrupted by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And although Abraham had all the wealth, his beloved wife was now gone, maybe forever. And I'm sure as he sat there in his house surrounded by all of these things, he must have missed her. He must have wondered, how on earth can I find a way to get Sarah back? Can't ask God because he's been ignoring God up to this point. But then the problems come. And now for the first time in this whole story of their trip down to Egypt, God begins to act. And it says in verse 17, and notice the language very carefully. Notice how the sentence begins very carefully. It says, and the Lord. Well, God sees what's going on. God is unimpressed by what is going on. And God has the ability to act. To, do, to not just deliver Abraham from this situation, but to chastise and humiliate Abraham in this situation. And God intervenes by sending a plague into the house of Pharaoh. And those of us who have come through the pandemic, well, it's not hard for us to imagine what type of plagues God may have sent. And suddenly all of the house of Pharaoh's and his people are plagued with all kinds of diseases, so much so clearly that they, they can't even come near one another. Now, we don't know how Pharaoh discovered from the plague who was the cause of the plague. But he did. And in verse 18, Pharaoh calls Abraham to him. You see, God's promises don't depend on Abraham's faithfulness. Because if they did, Abraham would be finished at this point, wouldn't he? And it's the same with us. God's promises to us that we are his people and he will be with us all the journey of life and he'll never leave us or forsake us. And he'll bring us all the way safely home to heaven those promises are not predicated on our faithfulness because if they were, we'd be finished long ago. That's why when God grants us salvation, he says, I give unto my sheep eternal life. Eternal life. You see, if keeping your salvation 
was up to you, would lose it within five minutes. If you remember the story of Adam and Eve, they're in the perfect environment with a perfect relationship with God and a perfect marriage, and they couldn't keep it. But with no other sinners as their neighbors to even entice them into sin, and yet they fell. And if they couldn't keep it, you and I sure couldn't keep it. Thank God that his promises to his people are not conditional upon our faithfulness. And here God has promised Abraham at the start of chapter 12 uh, that God would bless him, uh, that God would bring him from the land of Ur of the Chaldees into this new land. And even later on, he promised to give him the land of Canaan, showed him the land when he arrived there. and says, I'm going to give this to your descendants. These promises are unconditional. Not based or predicated on the faithfulness of Abraham. And God intervenes here because although Abraham has forgot God, God has not forgotten Abraham. The Bible tells us whom the Lord loveth, he what? Chastener. Because he loves, he can't let go. When you join his family, you can't unjoin his family. There's no divorce in the family of God. And God comes after Abraham here, and he does it in a way that not only will teach Pharaoh and his people a lesson, but he'll also teach and humiliate Abraham and chastise Abraham. And he sends this disease or series of diseases. We don't really know what they are, different speculations, but we can imagine it was something that prevented any intimacy between any man and any woman. And Pharaoh recognized the finger of God is on me. He recognized that God had put a division between him and Abraham because of the presence of Sarai in his home. And God, Pharaoh calls Abraham before him. And there's no pleasantries anymore. There's no gifts anymore for Abraham. Notice the language of Pharaoh. You, you can sense the urgency. You can sense the anger. You can even sense the desperation of Pharaoh. Because he doesn't even begin by offering Abraham the opportunity to confess. Or nor does he ask Abraham for information about what's going on. He just comes straight to Abraham and straight to the point, And he says, what is this that thou hast done unto me? Wow. He's not asking, he's telling. Abraham, you've done wrong. And he says, why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? You hid this from me. You deceived me, Abraham. You used a half-truth which was covering up a real lie because technically Sarah was his half-sister because they shared the same father. 
But Abraham was using it as a half-truth to cover up the reality that she also was his wife and to deceive Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Now, Abraham, when he married her, had married her for better, for worse. Not right. In sickness and in health. And the way back in Genesis chapter 2, God, when he instituted marriage, was for the man to leave his parents and the woman to leave her family and to cleave together. And I explained to you when we looked at Genesis chapter 2 that day that that Hebrew verb meaning cleave means to be glued together. That's the idea. And it's what they call in Hebrew a state of verb. It's, it's a verb that means one that's a continual state of being, such as he is God. doesn't cease ever to be God. He is is a, is a similar type of verb. So when it says they cleave together in God's command, in God's order, in God's eyes, it's a permanent cleavage together, permanent union. So Abraham knew all of that. And when he married Sarah, he had taken that vow before God to be with this woman together for life, till death us do part, as the old vow says in the marriage ceremony. And yet when it came this little crisis, little threat, Sister Sarah, no, no, no. Just let's just play this game. This drama. Let's act it out. That you're my sister and not my wife. And Pharaoh, when he hears, he calls Abraham to him. And really, this is humiliating for Abraham. To be called out by a pagan king. Imagine, the father of the faithful. The one who belongs to Jehovah. The one that we read went to the land of Canaan in verse 8 and called upon the name of the Lord publicly, built an altar to him. And now Pharaoh says, you're the guy that says you follow this religion of Jehovah? That he's the one true God? And here you are down here lying, deceiving me, playing games. And he goes on in verse 19, he says, Why saidest thou, she is my sister? So I might have taken her to me to wife. He says, Pharaoh says to him, I could have taken her as my wife. You deceive me into this, Abraham. Now you notice, Abraham did a lot of talking to Sarah in planning this. But he's not talking now. Because he's got nothing to say. Can't deny it. It's true. And he's like a child caught with his hands in the sweetie jar, isn't he? There's no excuse. And it's to Abraham's credit that he try, doesn't try to excuse it. Doesn't try to dilute it. Doesn't even say, well, you know, Pharaoh, it, it was a blunder, but I did it because of A, B, C, and D. No. Abraham accepts the humiliation. And one of the things you'll notice in the Bible, even amongst believers in the Scripture, those who spiritually prosper 
and achieve things for God. Ultimately, when they fall and fail, you discover they're great repenters of their sin. Do you remember when King David got caught with Bathsheba? And Nathan came to him that day and called him out for his sin without excusing what he had done, without blaming her. He immediately said, I have sinned against the Lord. No equivocation, no dilution of what he had done. He immediately said, I'm guilty. And Nathan said to him, the Lord has forgiven you your sin. God can see your heart's truly repentant, David. Whereas King Saul, every time he was caught, what's he doing? Blaming other people. Blaming the people. Blaming circumstances. Even blaming God. That was Saul. All his 40 years as king, he's always looking to blame someone else. And Abraham, to his credit here, when he's caught and confronted by Pharaoh, he takes his punishment, takes the humiliation. And that's a mark of a child of God who's in touch with God or wanting to get back in touch with God, that they're willing to accept, I'm wrong, when they're confronted by their sin. And they're willing to say, hey, I deserve what's coming to me. I deserve what's said about me. Mr. Spurgeon once received a letter from someone who made all kinds of statements, many of them untrue about him. And he opened the letter, and there were others present, and they read it with him. And they said, Mr. Spurgeon, you're not going to write back to that person and set them straight and rebuke them for what they have said about you? And Spurgeon says, I may not be guilty of what they're saying in this letter, but I know my own life, that there's many other things in my life that I need rebuke for. And maybe the Lord is using this to rebuke me. I just accept it. And he wrote back to the person, he says, thank you for your letter. I am guilty of so much more. Regards, C.H. Spurgeon. And Abraham accepts the rebuke, even though it doesn't come directly from God. He recognizes the finger of God upon it. And then Pharaoh says this to him. He says at the end of verse 19, Now therefore, behold thy wife. The woman that you deceived, she's your wife. Tells Abraham, she is your wife. And he says to him, take her. Go thy way, get out of here. Get out of my land. Not just get out of my palace. Get out of this country. Now Abraham had gone there, remember, ignoring God's will. And now God is forcing him out of there. And you know, if you as a Christian decide to turn your back on God's will, God has a way of coming after you. And he's a way of making you do a U-turn. 
And sometimes it's a very unpleasant way. Sometimes it's a very humiliating way. And in Abraham's case, it's going to be a very humiliating U-turn. And Pharaoh is so set on this, it says in verse 20, he commanded his men concerning him. And they sent him away. And so they made sure this guy's out of this country. Not a minute more will he stay in the land of Egypt. He's a danger to us. And his God is a danger to us. Now it's sad that Pharaoh recognizes all of this and doesn't repent himself. Doesn't deal with his own sin. But that's another thought. But God here is concentrating on Abraham and getting Abraham out of Egypt back into the promised land where God wants him to be, where God has called him to be. And then there's just a little expression at the end of verse 20 that's maybe overlooked, which says so much about God. Because not only does Abraham not lose his life here and not lose his wife, although he's lost his testimony, It says, and all that he had. Now, he had gained this wealth by wrong methods and wrong motives. And God could have taken it all away from him. Certainly, he deserved to lose it all, didn't he? But in the graciousness of the Lord, in the mercy of God's providence, he allowed Abraham to keep all the wealth that he had accrued and gathered up down in Egypt. Now, this wealth will be a blessing to Abraham in many ways over the next 100 years. It'll allow him, for example, to buy a burying place for Sarah when she passes on. It will enable him to be able to fight a war with his servants. He'll have almost 300 servants willing to fight with him and for him. So there will be blessings that will come from having this wealth that God, in his graciousness, permits Abraham to accumulate here. But there also will be negatives with it. And we'll discover as we go through the subsequent chapters that the wealth that Abraham gathers up in Egypt will bring a snare into his home, particularly in the lives of his nephew Lot. Because if you go to Genesis 13, and we'll just pause on the verse for a brief moment tonight. But when Abraham and Lot come back into the land of Canaan. There's going to come a division between them. And the division will not be a doctrinal division. It'll not be a personality fallout that sometimes happens between relatives. But it'll be a fallout over money. 
And even though the two of them become very wealthy down in Egypt, the wealth will immediately divide them when they get up into the land of Canaan. And it will cause division between their servants and squabbles. And eventually it will force them apart. But there's a little verse that may have passed you by as you've read maybe chapter 13 before. Because we discover in chapter 13, in verse 10, that when Abraham asked Lot to make a choice, which part of the promised land he wants to go to. Notice how Lot reasons. Now, Lot's a spiritual weakling here. He's the one that is particularly lusts after wealth. And coming down to Egypt didn't satisfy that lust. In fact, it inflames that lust that Lot lived with all his life for possessions. Now, Lot's a believer. We may not think that from the Old Testament, but the New Testament makes that clear. He calls him righteous Lot. But it says in verse 10, And Lot lifted up his eyes, beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord. And then there's a little comma. Notice what it says next. Like the land of which country? Egypt. What Abraham saw in Egypt, Lot saw in Egypt, never left the heart of Lot. And Abraham dragging Lot down to Egypt in this foolish action is sowing the seeds of terrible problems in his family. And what will come from the choice of going down into Egypt will have an impact not just in the immediate humiliation of Abraham being driven out of Egypt by Pharaoh, but it will cause him many long-term problems. Indeed, after his death, the divisions between Lot's descendants and Abraham's descendants will go on for generations. And I just say that by way of a sight. So, the blessings that came, or the graciousness of the Lord in letting Abraham keep his wealth will not necessarily be a good thing in Abraham's family. That's why it's very foolish. And let me just say this to you by way of application. Never get up every day and look to the world. The world around us, they live for wealth, don't they? We even have this expression, we live in a consumer age. And it's very easy when you're in business, when you're in the workplace, when everybody else is chasing these things, materialism, when the advertisements are bombarding you with it in the television, when the peers that you work with talk nothing but material things. It's very easy for us to be seduced into that way of thinking. It takes a very strong person, spiritual person, 
to be able to be surrounded by all of those things and not allow those things to get into their heart and mind. Few of us can handle it. Few of us can handle it well. So don't pray that God would make you wealthy. Just pray that God would give you enough. Pray that God would give you enough for your family and for you to live the Christian life here on earth. And pray that he wouldn't give you too much lest it become a snare to you. And if not to you, to your other family members. And the Lord is very gracious to Abraham. And I like what the psalmist says of the Lord. Psalm 103, listen to these words. He says, the Lord is merciful and gracious. I'm sure when Abraham limped out of Egypt, he was saying to himself, the Lord is merciful. The Lord is gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Abraham could say amen to that, couldn't he? As he limps out of Egypt, God has not given me what I deserve down in the land of Egypt. Now, Abraham will learn from this incident a very painful lesson. The way of the transgressors is always the hard way. And you can follow God's path for your life. That's the easy way. But the moment you step out of it, you go the hard way. But ultimately, God will bring you back. And what seemed a simple decision for Abraham when the famine came in the land of Canaan is now going to cost him so much, isn't it? This small step of compromise. We should all learn the lessons of this story. We should all read this story carefully I remember one old preacher used to say, when you read stories like this in the Bible, read them on your knees. Read them on your knees. The Apostle Paul, he said all of these things, talking about the Old Testament, are written for our learning and admonition. That's what Paul says. Everything you read from Genesis to Malachi, all, all these stories about these old saints. He says, all of them are written for our learning and admonition. There are examples. Sometimes there are examples for good. And we praised Abraham for his faithfulness. But there sometimes they're written as our examples as warning. Paul went on to say, let him who thinketh, he standeth. Take heed, lest he also fall. In other words, he says, whatever you see in Abraham, whatever failure you see in Abraham, there's a lot of Abraham in you and in me. And the potential for failure you see in him is the potential that's in your own life. 
let me finish by saying this. We cannot control our circumstances. That's God's job. And circumstances come and go, and all of us in this room are old enough, or at least most of us are old enough, to be able to look back on many decades of life. And if we think back to when we were 15, 20, 25 years of age, life has turned out so much different, really, hasn't it, from what we thought all those years ago. And circumstances come and go and go on trajectories we, we just would never have imagined. So we can't control those. God is the God of circumstance. But what we can control is our reaction to those circumstances. And really that's what the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 is all about. Circumstances will come into your life and difficulties will come into your life. And if they haven't come, they will. It's how we react to those challenges and to those circumstances. Egypt may give you their wealth, but they'll exact a very heavy price for cooperation with Egypt. Learn the lesson of Abraham, the painful lesson of joining hands with the wrong type of people. Join the, learn the lesson of Abraham that it's never right to step outside the will of God, even when it seems the easy option, the simple option, the popular option. And if Abraham was here tonight and he was giving a testimony, I think one of the things, in fact, I know if he was asked to stand up here, he would say, one of the greatest mistakes I ever made was to run down to Egypt because it cost me so much of lost fellowship with God, the presence of God in my life, and cost me so much problems and humiliation by that act of disobedience and foolishness. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the story of Abraham. Lord, we rightly applaud him when he walks with God, when he shows great faith in the promises of God, leaves Ur of the Chaldees to make his way into the promised land, but Lord, we also have to recognize his failures and learn that whenever any of us step outside the will of God, there's always going to be problems. It's always going to cost us. There's always going to be a consequence. Abraham not only faced the humiliation of God uncovering his deception, faced the humiliation of sinners rebuking him, but he then faced the problems of down through the generations of the consequence of that compromise in his own family circle and in his own descendants. Help us, Lord, to walk with you. Forgive us when we have feel like Abraham, 
and all of us have, in stepping outside your will, trusting on our own wisdom, thinking we can solve things without God, in our families, in our careers, businesses, relationships, in our family circles, even in the church. Forgive us when we lean on our own understanding. But we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.